This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 219 of our little podcast called Film Tank. Alex Diekman here with you, as always, along with my usual co-host, Nick Cheney. Hello. Hi. Hi. What? I just I said know. hello. You did, in a very nice, soft voice. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not just easy on the eyes, Alex. I'm also easy on the ears. Okay. I don't know what that means, but I kind of like it. So well, good. Bounce it around in that noggin of yours, and maybe it'll rattle out some meaning. Okay. Uh, Tucson Egan. Uh, Hi. Again, oh, <laughs> sorry. Again, not joining us uh, on this episode, but uh, hope he'll be back soon. He's yeah. got some other things going on, so uh, we'll be catching up with him down the road, I'm sure. Uh, but He's enough- out canvassing for Bernie. <laughs> don't. Don't do that to This Tucson. is a test to see if he's listening to the episodes he's not on. <laughs> I can already see, like, the hands on the hips being like, you did what? <laughs> I don't know why I'm making this him... Motherfucker. Oh, I, said, I don't know why I'm making him look like Steve Urkel, but that's all right. Oh, I've done that a million times. And he hates it just as much every time. Yeah, well, I could understand that. Uh, although Tucson is not here, our friend Sam Shamara is joining us again. Hello again. Hello again, indeed. A regular contributor to this podcast. It's special. It's good. Yay. We've we've accumulated more regular contributors because you and Anna and uh, our friend Dan yeah. uh, has, has joined. I, I don't know why I'm talking about you people like your visitors on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but... Um, I like it. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's good. That's an honor. <laughs> yes. Uh, who... Who is that? Is, is it the mailman? Oh, <laughs> Mr. McFeely. But we don't call our guests things that could be taken out of context. Yes, they, they also do not arrive with a piece of mail that also has a accompanying 20-minute video package. So, But that's okay. Is that something we want to try for? Or? I mean, we I probably have to have video content yeah. somewhere okay. first. That's the only thing. Yeah. But as always, it is wonderful to have you. And um, looking forward to talking about the movie that Sam suggested for this episode, which is a movie that I very much love. So uh, as soon as he said, hey, would you be interested? I was like, yes, we would. I spoke for Nick. Uh, and <laughs> In more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and that is the uh, film that came out uh, just last year and was nominated for many. I thought it came out in 1917. Thank ha. you. Thank you, Nick. Ha. 
That, <laughs> that's, that's, like the haha, that was good. Sam <laughs> thought it was funny, clearly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Big laughs. Real laughs. They should get me to host the Oscars. What was that? What's the Oscars? What's the Oscars? Pack the care. Yes. That's good. Yeah, no, they they should. You'd be a riot. I mean, you well, they let wear... Seth do it. Why not me? Yeah, you could you could go out. Maybe you could wear the cat's outfit and be like, that was my nightmare. Oh, let's talk about that. Okay. Anyway, so the movie we're going to talk about is uh, Sam Mendes, 1917, which was nominated for many Oscars. Is this and in, one th- like some kind of Sam Solidarity thing? Solidarity! Sorry. Maybe. It was nominated, I believe, for 10 Oscars. Yeah. It won three uh, it, okay. however, did not win Best Picture at the award ceremony that just took place this previous week, and that is because the film Parasite, which we previously have done an episode on, won Best Picture and became the first foreign uh, language film to win Best Picture and the first film um, that was a winner of the International Award, uh, although that was the first year of it. it used to be Best Foreign Film, but now oh, it's yeah, Best yeah. International Film. Oh, that what they called it? I skipped past it knowing it was going to win, not because I didn't want to see it, but because I was trying to like catch up to live. TV. Actually, um, uh, Bone's speech on uh, that I went was back and watched the better, speech was actually better. I thought than well, his director's speech was very good as well. I mean, the problem is if you're going to win multiple awards, like how do you yeah, well, come right. up with multiple speeches? You plan so. for one, unless you're you plan for the one you think you're going to win, no matter what. Unless you're some boner like Steven Spielberg who has six different speeches prepared. Yeah. Although I don't want to hear anybody talk any shit about the woman who spoke after Parasite because she that's. She won Best Picture, and she was basically, like, from what I understand, like, the Korean media mogul over there, you know, like the Amy Pascal or whatever you want to call it, of Korea. And, yeah, that whole moment was shameful on the Academy's part. What? got plenty of that. Oh, I thought you were like, not really. Oh, no. (laughs) Not shameful in, like... I never expected this from them, but just kind of like, seriously. No, I mean, any... any, I guess my opinion is any person who gets played off stage, as long as they're not just rambling, is really not great. And it's like every time they do it for like a technical award, I still think like that's a piece of shit. Like they should let them speak. However, at least I understand the logic behind it. Like I understand that kind of bias against it. But best picture like makes no sense to me that you're like you need to really get to that local news. Yeah. (laughs) And you already went a half hour over the – the running time, or at least they're, according, they're, according they to my do. DVR. Yeah. Their, their timing was pretty do. good this year, actually, I thought. Well, I didn't think it was too long. I just, like, our DVR had it at from this to this, and I think they made a last-minute change in the week up leading up to it, mm-hmm. and then our DVR, our cable provider, didn't get that update. So I do think it actually went the length it was supposed to, mm. but... Had we not gone to live, uh, we would have missed the whole last half hour. But that's the whole thing. They should just know that these things are going to take it four hours and just let people watch it. Like, it's just, you know. Yep, I would agree. So, anyways, Parasite uh, ended up being a bit of a surprise winner, although it seemed like it was gaining more steam as the weeks went on before the actual ceremony. But at the same time, since it was a foreign film, there was this idea that it was playing against the stack to deck for the most part. And yet still, uh, it ends up becoming the winner, which I feel like actually might have something to do with his speech from the Golden Globes, because I believe that was the week of Oscar voting. And he basically shamed people for not watching films that have subtitles. And then all of a sudden it wins and actually probably should have, because I think 
even though uh, I would have picked other films in front of it, I still feel the same as I did the year that Moonlight won Best Picture, that it is definitely a worthy choice, and especially for the time that we live in, the right choice. I mean, every Oscar season, there's always movies I wish that were nominated that didn't even get nominated, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Movies I would be okay with winning, and then movies I just don't want to win. <laughs> like, whatever. And as long as you're just a movie that I think is good, which I think Parasite very much is, uh, like, I'm happy. And I will admit, a part of it is, like, extra happy because it means a lot more than some of the other ones. Like, I think I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood even more than Parasite. But, like, I, you know... The elation that I felt of seeing Parasite win and that whole uh, troop go up there is would have been a lot. Uh, it would have been a lot more subdued than if like Tarantino got to go up there with Brad Pitt and be like, "We made a movie." Uh, like you know, like great. But so no, I was very happy, obviously, with that outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the the best choice, especially for this year. And we'll talk more about 1917 on this episode. I'm a huge fan of it, but. At the end of the day, it is just another war movie. So even if it's very good, uh, it still doesn't really move the needle when it comes to having a message and also just being somewhat, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but moving in a direction of including other cultures in your actual awards, not just being like, so we have the American films and then there's all these other places and they can have this one award. Something I can't wait for, as someone who works at the library and I work at the public desk, uh, is that there's now we're going to be living in a post-parasite world where, in the weeks to come, I'm I can put money down that people are going to come to the desk and when they start looking for movies, that got a huge bump on um, video on demand. Did it? Yeah. The next day, people are going to go yeah. see because that's yeah. the thing is nobody saw Parasite, and when I say nobody, I don't mean that literally in the sense that a lot of like cinephiles did, and in fact, actually it did pretty well in the box office. But the Especially p- after it was nominated for awards. Yeah. And after it, um, it, everybody knew that it won the uh, Golden Palm. Palm the, oh, yeah, the Palm Door account yeah. and whatnot. But this is going to be an actual like seismic uptick in people mm-hmm. who probably either A, never heard of it, right. or B, heard of it but had no idea that they should even seek it out, are going to go seek it out against some of their better judgment, because I know some of the people are not going to like it due to having violent content. Like, these are the people who probably wanted Ford versus Ferrari to win. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, and that's going to be so much fun when they come to the That desk. movie was so underwhelming. Yeah. Oh, God, I was at Target today picking yeah. up a movie, and I overheard a conversation between the exact person you would picture as a super fan of that movie. Like, late 50s, early 60s, white male... Uh, literally, he was like asking, he's like, I can't find Ford versus Ferrari, even though it was like right in the new release. Like, mm-hmm. Right there, there's like 10 different pockets of copies. And then they were like, oh, did you see? He goes, oh, man, I loved it. And <laughs> Anyway, sure. it, was, it was beautiful. Yeah. But anyway. Too bad the movie wasn't. Yep. Yeah. So uh, a couple things I did want to mention, other than obviously the, the major winner. And Sam, I'm assuming you have never seen Parasite, right? I have not. Okay. Definitely something you'd want to maybe look into down the road. Even if it hadn't won, it's still just a very, very good film. Yeah. Uh, so the one thing I will mention, uh, two things. One of them I hated and one I'm thinking is so ridiculous that it's gotten totally blown out of proportion, I feel like. Ooh. Which was the 
um, obnoxious James Corden Rebel Wilson cat's moment. Oh yeah, that I I feel weird that I would actually defend James Corden and Rebel Wilson, but as soon as they walked on stage, I'm like, oh my god, my two least favorite people. <laughs> yeah, which I completely understand. But here's the thing: I actually thought their bit was funny because unlike Will Ferrell, who I still enjoy, <laughs> but like they. Oh actually... man, that that bit with him and uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus was so stupid. I agree, Ugh. and so even like. I don't know, but when they came out and they did their casting, I'm like, you know what? They're at least, I think, poking fun at their own image by doing it. So kudos to that. And then, you know, yeah, like they didn't actually, I think, drag the joke on too long. Like they they did it longer than you should. So that way it became funnier because they wouldn't stop. But then it just stopped, whatever. But the outcry over how they're quote unquote, but they never actually made a single comment about the visual effects. It was, I think it was implied. Even, well, even no, I'm so. not saying it wasn't implied, but they didn't truly target. I just think they were. It was. I thought it was more lampooning their image having been attached to it. I guess, and how I think it looks ridiculous. Yeah. No matter what, whether you put on a suit, whether you do yeah. the CGI, and like this is a real thing that happened, and this is 2019. I just movie. can't. Um, we've talked about this ad nauseum on on this very podcast, <laughs> but this idea that. Anything that's anti-CGI is, like, the worst because CGI is the only special effects you can have is so nauseating to me. Well, like, it just, like, we saw the cast movie, and in all honesty, it just wasn't as bad as most people made it out to I was going to say, we are weirdly favorable toward that movie in the sense that neither one of us thought it was good, but yet neither one of us thought it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But, But at the same time, I feel like, like, the visual effects community being up in arms that anyone would question like yeah people do bad work in every in every industry yeah. so yeah. you need to like also, own that a little it was bit. objectively bad it wasn't subjective if technically there are scenes that are unfinished yeah and i if it was because you got laid off or because then that's not your fault and you, we're not calling you out you know what i mean like they have to understand that there's a power structure at play that we're all implicitly making fun of and not the individual human. And I get why sometimes things people take things seriously, but I think you're looking for a fight. Like I never once thought about that until they brought it up. So now I feel like they're just making themselves look worse because Mm -hmm. now I'm like, okay, so now you're upset when uh, you know, I don't know. It's just anyone questioning anything that is done there. It's like, no, like I'm sorry, but uh, in the uh, I can't Allied the uh, Brad Pitt Marin Cotillard film yeah. when they're running through the desert and there's CGI sand going in their face like that looks bad yeah. that that is totally unnecessary and it yeah. looks bad or but Chris Chris Pratt I don't holding think onto would... a CGI dinosaur looks bad it looks stupid <laughs> but I don't think you would tell the person that was sitting behind the computer who rendered it like oh you did a bad job I think that's for the director to know what we're capable of and right. what we have the budget for it's not like the person who designed it is like you didn't make that look more realistic obviously if they could have with ever with the tools finances and means that they have they would have that's so true. that's still a top down decision it is but I feel like that's part of the problem is that there's this idea that visual effects when it, it visual effects and CGI have become synonymous yeah. over the last decade. And it's really unfortunate because that should not always be the answer. And they're getting so uptight over anyone questioning 
a decision, especially when it's a bad decision, oh, yeah. is baffling to me. And the other thing is, I'll say right now, bad CGI, bad visual effects does not make a bad movie. Um, I'm currently going through all of the Godzilla movies, and now I'm in the <laughs> 90s. So that's at the peak of, like, they're finally getting away from all practical effects. Like, this, they're still doing suits, but they are doing a few more CGI-type sets and whatnot. And it looks, in so many scenes, ridiculous and silly or whatever. And yet, it actually makes the movie better. Not because it's like, oh, now it's bad. It's it's so bad, it's good. Just I'm like, okay, this has a clear visual palette that it wants to do, and it is doing it with whatever it can, you know, achieve it, but it's a consistent environment that these characters are existing in, so it's fine. And, I, I you know, I don't want those movies to be more realistic right. or anything like that. So, if anything, there is a movie that was made five years after that that's much worse CGI than 1999 or 1998 Godzilla movie that's way worse than anything that the movies five years prior was doing. Um, but anyway, it's just... It's not about you, so it's like, so shut up. That's kind of uh, how I feel. Yeah. So you said you wanted to mention something? Yeah. Uh, also, so. Two random things. Uh-huh. One, similarly to that, there's another moment that is being blown out of proportion, which is that people are having an outcry, not everybody, because some people are on the other side of it, but over the fact that people think that Shia LaBeouf was laughing at his co-star from the Peanut Butter Falcon, which I never got the impression of. Like, it's live television, and, like, he giggled a little bit because, yeah, like, how... I don't know. I just think people are so cynical. And mm. I, why did you get the impression? That I didn't he, see it, so I have no idea. I missed the first hour. So, so. Shia LaBeouf came out with his co-star from uh, the Peanut Butter Falcon. I forget his name, unfortunately, but he has Down syndrome and went mm-hmm. and you know he was an actor in that movie, or they both were. So they came out, and it was the first time uh, a down person with Down syndrome has ever got to present at the Oscars, which is awesome. Yeah, and Shia LaBeouf came out with him and let him do most of it. It was it was pretty well set up in the sense that he did certain parts of any child buffed did others and there was a, and every time it was uh time for his co-star to do his line he took a good 10 15 seconds before he like started to say his line you know whatever and at one point because it was taking a long time um he froze at another part and then Shia LaBeouf behind him because I believe and I've been reading about it a little bit he was instructed not to help him not not never to help him or anything right. like that, but just let him do. And mm-hmm. he did get through it all, whatever. Yeah. And at one point he froze and it was like the, I don't know, fourth or fifth time and it happened, whatever. And Shia LaBeouf was behind him and he kind of, he didn't laugh, but he kind of giggled like, and I don't know, he just looked nervous, excited to be there and whatnot. And apparently so it wasn't it was, like pointing and laughing. No, no. Yeah. but because he smiled and he giggled, you know what I mean? Like he's there according to him, with his friend and whatnot. And apparently it was Shia LaBeouf who insisted that he would present. Like, it was, they wanted Shia LaBeouf, and he's like, well, the only movie I've done this year was Peter Butter Falcon. And, well, besides Honey Boy. Well, that's not technically true. Okay, fine. But, but yeah. that was the one that people saw. Because uh, <laughs> Honey Boy is coming out, I think, this year, officially. Okay. Uh, but anyway, he wanted him to come out and present with him. So he made it. I don't know. I just thought people were really looking for a fight there for no reason. Yeah. Um, Shia LaBeouf's pretty unlikable right now, but I, get, I guess I felt like he was at his peak about five years ago, but now he's kind of simmered down. Mm-hmm. But, to be to be fair, yeah. I think something though that I think you make a good point though that he 
could just potentially be nervous. Yeah. Um, I know mm-hmm. I laugh when I get nervous. Exactly. Um, so in that case, it may have been like a, we didn't rehearse this. I don't know necessarily how to respond to this. Um, it I, could even be kind of like a, I don't want to say like an endearing thing, but almost just like a, you know, hey, it's all good. Like, yeah. right. don't yeah. be too serious about if it. If he yeah. stood up there with like a statue of that like. That would have been awkward. Yeah. So, and, and nobody in the room like laughed or like, you know, right. like whatever. Yeah. So it's not like anyone fed off of that kind of energy or anything like that. So I just thought people like took a micro second of a moment in a relationship nobody knows anything about right and just thought the worst of it for no real reason other than i guess because shia labeouf is unlikable but i don't know it just sounds like major clickbait to me yeah the other thing too is i just feel like that's also some people's like reaction to anybody who would do something nice for somebody who maybe uh, neuroatypical or anything like that like there's skepticism uh, skepticism involved with like well he's not that good of a person because he did that or whatever, because maybe they themselves wouldn't do that. <laughs> but yeah. the only other thing I wanted to mention, uh, one of the worst uh, speeches I've ever seen in my entire life was Renee Zellweger. <laughs> that was genuinely w- just God awful. She was kind of in a bad place. She had to follow Joaquin Phoenix's speech and not that his speech was like, incredible, but, but it was his something. speech was at least meaningful. Yeah. Um, and then she came up there and she's like, oh, I'm great. Uh, this, she tried to really circle it back to Judy Garland. She? she tried to, but it, she failed. I mean, that, that was, I mean, I was only like half paying attention. First of all, she should have gotten played off stage because she was rambling yeah. really bad. They will bring the microphone down for the best picture parasite winner, but nobody's going to tell Renee, you know, squirrel cheeks, Zellweger, uh, Sorry, I'm only insulting her because that was just such a bad speech, and like someone needs to bring her down if she can speak for that long. Uh, but Albert Einstein, Al Capone, these are heroes. Like uh, she didn't say Al Capone for the record, but God, like uh, I was slightly uh, impaired that evening, <laughs> and um, I yeah. turned to my mother and I'm like am I too far gone? Like, did I? And she's like, no, this is going on for a very long time. And I'm like, okay, I'm just checking here. Uh, it was not good. Well, um, she was at the end of her speech. From what I remember, she was really trying hard to circle it back to Judy Garland and make this. And I feel like, man, um, nobody really cares, even though like she won for that performance. I don't know, like, the rest that came before it, then going into that just didn't make sense. I didn't see it. You said that that movie was just awful. I hated it. I, <laughs> no, I genuinely, I love Judy Garland, um, and I actually thought that movie was slightly infuriating in the way it portrayed her, and I thought Renee Zellweger was not very good, um, and I just thought the whole thing was just bad. So I was already kind of primed to, like, roll my eyes at her speech, but she could have very easily got in and out and just did a worthy speech and whatever, but it went the in the exact opposite uh, direction, and it just made me even more kind of like, God, this is not necessary. That wasn't a very good, a very stacked category this year. I feel like one thing that I was really annoyed with is that there was no variety in any of the award shows of who won the acting categories, which I was almost dumbfounded by. Yeah. 
Like, because... They went with the showiest roles, I would say. No. For the acting categories? No way. Well, I guess I'm thinking just the lead. I guess. I, I, I mean, I'm, you're I'm, playing I'm, the Joker. Yeah. I'm a, you're I'm playing a, I'm assuming. I'm assuming that Charlize Theron's role in Bombshell is way more showy than the Judy Garland role. I haven't seen Bombshell, but I can assure you there is way more histrionics in Judy. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, that's a more... Like, oh, I thought you meant show. I thought you meant loud, but that's all right. No, like, you know. Okay, but here's the thing. Like, I'm acting with my body, not my face. I almost feel like, from the way it went, that Scarlett Johansson wasn't even considered for Marriage Story, which I feel oh, yeah. like As I she gave got a that same fa- vibe. fabulous performance, and she wasn't even really in the running, even though she was nominated. Yeah, no. But, yeah, that's the trouble with some of these years, is that that kind of becomes the foregone conclusion. And I feel yeah, like it, it feels it, lazy. Oh, it feels absolutely. like people are just like... Which is why nobody expected Parasite. Yeah. I mean, that was the exact opposite, where you're like, oh, they actually did their job. Yeah, well... Anyway. What you gonna do? Uh, anyway, speaking of that, not that it would have been a bad choice, I don't think, but the favorite to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards was... 1917. Before and, the ceremony started, I would have put money on it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in fact, it did not win. Uh, there were other films that I actually thought were more deserving, uh, especially uh, The Irishman, which uh, clearly didn't really move the needle for many people. It got a lot of nominations, but didn't come in with any trophies, which is fine because they hate Netflix, which is okay to do. But at some point, we're going to need to break that mold because that's just not going to get the job done. I think they hate Netflix, but also they really don't care for Martin Scorsese. Like, they pretend to. But if you actually look at to how much stuff he's ever been nominated for, but then ever, he's kind of in Quentin Tarantino's boat of doesn't really win as much as he gets that kind of intention that he, you know. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what happened to Roger Deakins for his entire career is he just kept getting nominated and not acknowledged. And now he's won two times in a row. Yes. Uh, I do think that this was better work than the first film he won for, but that's all right. Which one was that? Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not right. No, I just don't remember. No, I think, uh, I think he won for Blade Runner, oh. but maybe then I was, I'm no, mistaken. No, he did because someone made a joke about he's now won two with years of the title. Oh, uh, okay. So, yep. That makes sense then. And that was good. I mean, that was very good as well. But Gorgeous he's done movie. great work throughout his entire career. Oh, so. yeah. There are more roles, more roles, more <laughs> movies, uh, I think, outside of both of those movies that he should have won for. But I would agree. Anyway. So, uh, even though it did not win the big prize, uh, 1917 did win Best Achievement in Cinematography, mm-hmm. also Best Achievement in Visual Effects, which I was very excited for because the rest of that category was pretty much nauseating. Star Wars? I was going to say... I genuinely like, gasped when I saw that because <laughs> I forgot about that. I was like, oh, really? I will say I uh, like almost threw up when I saw that The Lion King was nominated. Ah, but that's live action. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will say something in 1917's favor. Mm-hmm. As well, spoiler, I was not too high on it. But... What? I, but seeing that little, you know, whenever you see the movies when they're nominated before mm-hmm. they win, I will say the visual effects thing, there were things in there that I didn't realize were composites. And so, therefore, I gained a respect for it in that 
department. In that. Yep. Yes, I got you. Also, it won for best sound mixing, although not best sound editing, which I thought was so stupid because I talked about this um, right after I saw the film that I thought that that was clearly the best done but, sound of the entire year. Vroom, vroom. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. I'm still I'm still really butthurt over Ford vs. Ferrari. I'm sorry, buddy. I know. Uh, it was it was a it was a really calm roar. Uh last thing I'll say really quickly about the Oscars. Oh, I thought you were gonna say about your butt. Thank you for that. Uh I thought that not having like a little vignette about each movie throughout and then having just a longer uh, clip towards the end when they are actually doing the award was way better. I'd agree with that. I think and, it interrupts the flow yep. in a way that's not necessary when you can just do that. And it's just much better at the end when you can just play the clips and everyone knows exactly what they're looking at. Yep. And I liked how they interweaved a lot of the acting clips together when they did those categories as well. I thought that was felt much more breathable instead of just one handpicked clip that really usually either has an awkward entrance or exit and it's awkward for everyone and instead this felt more real and authentic and organic the only thing i would wish that they would add to the oscar ceremony is that i would kind of love if they commissioned the pieces where Video pieces, so to speak, because people are doing it already on the internet. So just give somebody a thousand dollars to use their video or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we watched, because I would watch it at least, a three minute video of clips exclusively from films not nominated th- from throughout the year. I mean, like, let us remember that Midsummer came out this year. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you're never going to give it an award, but you also know that people watched it. They did and, something yeah. similar to that last year. Yeah. And I didn't see the beginning, so there wasn't anything like that. I kind of vaguely like that. remember that. But there wasn't I've... anything like that this year? No, not this year. That's a the shame. only time uh, I was reminded of that was Janelle Monet, her opening number. People were dressed like Florence Pugh's character behind her, I believe, if that's what they were going. They were also dressed like people from Best Picture nominees. Okay. But there were people in a white and flower crown. I'm like, that, I guess, is a Midsummer. From what I remember from last year's awards, they had a... Almost like the video that you would see on YouTube, which is just like a best I do of actually mashup. remember that. And it was actually very good. Yeah, and I think they should do that yearly. I would agree. So, anyway. Anyways, moving on. Uh, 1917 was directed by Sam Mendes. Uh, he also has a writing credit on that, although also uh, Christy Wilson Cairns also has a writing credit for 1917 as well. Although the dialogue isn't really what at home, but it's not bad either, what? I don't think. You didn't think it was stupendous when it was all quiet? <laughs> I thought a lot of the... the uh, I preferred it when it was quiet. <laughs> I, thought, I thought a lot of the yes. uh, smaller moments were actually pretty good, but some of it, I would say... Mm. Uh, the film stars uh, George McKay as Lance Corporal Schofield. Uh, the film also stars Dean Charles Chapman it features a bunch of people kind of like something like Saving Private Ryan who show up at different parts throughout the film, including Colin Firth. Also uh, showing up are Andrew Scott and Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch. Mark Strong was the guy who showed up with the convoy, right? Yes. yes. He was very good in this mm-hmm. film, I thought. His sign-off line was so good, and then they never really landed that. I mean, there's other people yeah. in the room where it happened, but at the same time... But it's like it's such a good... I, 
you know, idea, seed, germ of whatever. Yeah. And then it didn't really end up being a factor, and I'm just kind of like, eh. Yeah, anyway. I, I'd agree. So 1917 uh, surrounds a regiment, uh, surrounds as a regiment assembles to wage war deep in enemy territory. Two soldiers are assigned to race against time and deliver a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking straight into a deadly trap. I know. You're floored, right? Uh, before we give our opening remarks and talk more about the film in general, uh, probably just come right out and just mention that mostly this film will probably be remembered by most people, I would think, uh, for the idea that it tried to have this no-edit look throughout it. And uh, I personally think that was pretty stupid. Even though I love this movie, <laughs> I don't get it. So I don't really think it brought much to this other than maybe the first 15 minutes, which I felt kind of made sense because you're trying to set a tone of this mm -hmm. idea that all this is happening so fast and you want to see how they're going back and forth. But as soon as time starts to move forward, it really makes no sense, especially in the way it was edited. Yeah, it definitely, I think the uniqueness comes from the fact that it did it in a war film. So that's where yeah. it can kind of claim the new ground, even though we're kind of on a recent trend of this happening and whatnot. But uh, literally one of our best picture winners was also... Uh, uh, that being Birdman, uh, done in that style. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not to that even rigorous, because even Birdman kind of winks his eye at certain parts, whereas yeah. this is really trying to hide the seams. But anyway. Yeah. So... I'll start. Okay, sounds good. Um, I initially wanted to see this primarily because... World War Two or, or World War One and World War Two history is very fascinating to me, mm -hmm. um, especially um, the European portion of it. Um, so, sort of starting with the historical nature of it, I guess, um, was something that I wanted to see what sort of maybe like accuracy mm. um, could be portrayed, especially after you've had movies um, that have tried to kind of put history into light. Um, I know something that um, my boyfriend and I had talked about after we had seen it was that um, a lot of films prior to the movie Fury um, that had come out didn't necessarily want to indulge in like the atrocities of war mm. um, and showing that on, on film. Um, but this film, and when you think about um, others like Saving Private Ryan, all that sort of stuff, um, kind of they're not ashamed to put that at the forefront um, and let you know like, hey, people bleed and they die. Um, like limbs get blown off and, and things like that. Um, so I was interested to see whether or not there would be a romanticism to this piece because when you look at like the color palette, and I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, just in like the scenes there, it seemed very dreamlike, um, mm -hmm. especially with that sort of like seamlessness um, that like you guys were talking about. That was something that I was very curious about. Um, so in watching it, I definitely... While it's very lovely to watch, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> scenic-wise, um, I don't 
necessarily know that the timeline of it felt I'm trying to think of the right word um I mean it felt realistic but not at the same time um I think one just because of how this doesn't make sense that all of these fantastical things are happening and yet he still just keeps going yes okay it felt very um like fantabulist Mm-hmm. Um, sure. in, in moments, especially, so I think one of the scenes I had the most trouble, like comprehending was actually, um, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> we do all of those here. Um, so you're in good shape when, um, Blake was stabbed, mm-hmm. um, and he just dies right there in his arms. Um, and a convoy appears. Yeah. Um, they actually I, appear to have been there for a while (laughs) yeah which is partly what i initially we thought it was sort of like a dream sequence or that he was hallucinating because of the milk or something like that okay um but it didn't make any sense because you would have heard that yeah wouldn't wouldn't all these people have have run over when that plane crashed right there right yeah i had a little bit of trouble with that scene um and then I think that's part of why I say that the editing just almost falls flat here because like trying to give the idea of the passage of time but not show it is really almost impossible to do. Something like Birdman. Have you ever seen that or not? Yes. I actually really love that film. It's a very good film. It works really well with the actual content of the picture. But at the same time, there is a clear showing of passage of time. Like we move from day to night in a short order or right. there's even editing sequences where day moves to night or we move from scene to scene right uh where here i feel like the intention from the director was that you as the audience are supposed to figure out that like hours are passing well before that convoy shows up which doesn't make any sense when your brain that. i didn't feel it either because <laughs> It didn't work out because this idea, and we talked about this on another episode randomly a few weeks ago, that I compared the editing in this to the editing in the Christopher Nolan movie Dunkirk, which also followed a really bizarre story structure and editing Mm -hmm. um, plan. And it just had this idea of, well, this this kind of scene is over three weeks, and this scene's over an hour, and they're just going to mesh together. It's like, nope. It didn't, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I, I see what you're work. going for, but you failed. Uh, yeah. And I feel like, in a lot of moments, the editing here does not work. Uh, again, I very much applaud what they were going for with oh, it. Yeah. But I feel like there were too many times, and that would be a really good moment, where... It just doesn't make sense that you want to have some sort of edit with a passage of time. Because the only real time, I feel like, that there is that, it works to this film's credit. Because it's after he was shot uh, in the room and he falls backwards and you have no idea what time it is. And he doesn't know what time it is. And it's pitch black. And it's wonderful. It It works works perfectly. And here, it just... there's, there's, There's too many questions that come from it. And that's something that... Like that particular scene where he falls back to, I, I think what I was having a difficult time understanding in this piece was why is time being used or like why are beats being used intentionally? 
um, and why are they not being used intentionally? Mm. Um, so like in that moment, once once his head hits the floor, it goes black. Mm-hmm. And you, there's actually, it felt suspenseful because you have multiple beats of it's, there's nothing happening, there's nothing happening, there's nothing happening. Is this the end of the film? It can't be the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes back versus that moment of them being on the abandoned farm. And it's, I feel like it could have had a few more beats to it, mm-hmm. but then I don't necessarily think I would have wanted more beats to it. I mm-hmm. think there could have been a better transition there, yeah. perhaps. Um, and I think it wouldn't have been bad to have a transition that was that that had a seam in that case. I yeah. think it would have been a little bit more. I guess you you could swallow it better. Um. And that's <laughs> and that's really one of this film's downfall, and I don't think it has many. Is that it got way too caught up on the idea of yeah. having this structure. Uh, And it works to this film's detriment, ultimately, because you can't really show things the way that you would want to portray them. Mm -hmm. Like, they almost decided on this editing decision. I feel like because they thought that it made the story better, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't really do that at all. It's it's like first draft saying, well, if we do the non-edit, we can show that all this is happening so quickly. But you can do that by just having good storytelling. Right. So why force your entire film to have this gimmicky editing yeah. uh, when you're in, in lieu of having you know even better story? And I think they that's the thing that really sucks about it is I feel like they did do very good storytelling throughout most mm-hmm. of the film and the editing just brought it down a bit. I agree. Other than that, um, and, and things like that, I, mm-hmm. it's not entirely negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably don't feel the same way as Nick does. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I, I very much applaud and am proud that this film did receive the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that was something that I was very impressed by. Um, probably one of my favorite, I have two favorite scenes within it. Um, and the one is um, when they are going, when the duo are initially going across the crater um, and they split off to the left-hand side and the camera skims over the water. Mm-hmm. And so you have these, our, our characters in the background and you're kind of forced to watch between what's what they're trying to navigate in the background but also in the foreground where there's you know crows and floating dead bodies and all this you Skeletons. know debris yeah and it's this really cool dynamic mm-hmm. um that i very much enjoyed um and i like that it was that slow pan of moving with them um that particular scene I enjoyed. Um, and the other one is, um, I can't remember, um, Elcott or something, the the French town that they were going through. Okay. Um, at night when he's going, um, when he's running from the German that's shooting at him, mm-hmm. um, the, the stark blue um, is just 
very lovely of because the the sun is coming up at that point mm-hmm. um and you can tell that there's a time limit now is this right before he jumps into the river yes okay um that portion i thought was very lovely to watch because you're still moving quickly but it's not like the confessionalism sort of camera where it's like hmm. jostling everything about the camera work was very smooth um which i thought was very impressive for you know I think a lot of war films would have tried to make it more realistic in the sense of like, oh, like the the tank is going over like, you know, something and everything's going to shake because of it. Nothing about that, about the camera work denoted that, which Mm. I appreciated. I I like that it was smooth enough that you could still sort of get the sensation that like, okay, this is rough terrain that you're going over without visually feeling like, I'm on a roller coaster ride. <laughs> um, but overall, um, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested to know like what you guys think of it as well. Okay. So who would like to take the, the talking stick? I can go next. <laughs> I know Nick's feelings already. So <laughs> not like that harsh. Or I know. So. But you also don't have like very strong feelings one way or the other. Yeah, I think that's ultimately, but... Yeah. So I loved this movie. I thought this film was great. Uh, I was super jacked for this movie pretty much from the first trailer on, and I was not disappointed with the final product. So I didn't mention the editing part of it is uh, a big strike for me, but I feel like it doesn't really affect my score too much because even though it... I think makes the movie worse. It still doesn't really take away from what's actually happening on the screen for the most part. Uh, I love that this film has a running clock and that it has this idea of urgency throughout it. And even though that doesn't work in every film, I think for here it works really well for the characters that we're watching and for the pacing of the story that we're seeing. I I really love the first 20 minutes of this movie. Uh, I'll let Nick talk more about it, but the scene when they're underground and everything that's happening with that, uh, I thought that was fantastic. And even though it wasn't one of my favorite parts of the film, I thought it was a really good tone setter for what we're going to be in store for for the rest of the film. Uh, Story-wise here, it was really simple, I thought, which is okay because you have a very simple idea which is that we need to save these people and we have no way of communicating with them, so we need you to complete this mission. Pick up a cell phone, dude. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I thought there was a lot in this story about the idea of, of there being uh, levels of management almost throughout, whether it's the army or it's life or it's your job or whatever. The idea of trusting your superiors and believing in them and also um, being able to be passionate about a cause for something is very interesting. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a little telegraphed, but our main character uh, who's played by George McKay, I feel like an unfortunate story beat for me was that this idea that he was not super crazy about this mission because it's almost like a suicide idea, especially after they run into Andrew Scott. He's like, no, better not go out there. Here's a flare gun. Throw it back because you're going to be dead. Um, At the same time though, he is a mostly unwilling participant 
and doesn't really want to go through with this mission and only does it really by himself because the brother of uh, the guy on the other end dies and he pretty much feels almost obligated to go forward with this story. Um, And really, that's really when this film becomes what it is because everything beforehand, although it was good, I felt like it was really clear that that's not the story that they were wanting to tell. They were wanting to tell this very solo story of having to go on this endeavor almost by yourself and having to push past all of the hurdles that could possibly come up, even mm-hmm. when it is, as you were mentioning, Sam, a bit fantastical at moments, as I guess films have to be. But if you're going for realism, that's not what this movie is. Uh, so... I will say um, one thing that really pushes this over the goal line for me and has this go from a good to a great film is this was such a wonderful theater experience for me and probably never get it again because who knows how many repeats this will have in the theater 10 years down the road. Is it because there was no one snoring during the quiet moments? Really? I mean, that's what I was hoping for because... I almost like have become accustomed to that at this point after that one gentleman who, and I guess I'm, I'm assuming it was a guy, but it definitely smelled, smelled, definitely sounded like a man snore. It smelled like a man snore. Mm -hmm. And that gentleman snored for a good solid hour and a half during knives out. And it, it was incredible. I, I just to not wake up by like, he's not going to go see knives. Best sleep of his life. I guess, like, there are loud parts of that movie that you would think the normal person would be somewhat alerted to. Well, to be fair, like, I'll at least, well, not to be fair to anyone who sleeps in a movie theater, like, (laughs) they should be executed at dawn. Um, But there is, I will say, there is something about loud noises that actually can put you to sleep. Like, if it's, you know, like, I could fall asleep in a theater if I didn't love movies so much. (laughs) So, anyway. That being said, I thought a lot of the elements that worked here, uh, that were working here for this film, um, did work very well. The sound design was absolutely flawless, in my opinion. It was just wonderfully sounding in the theater. And not just like the bombs that were going off and when there's shooting happening, but just all of the sounds that you hear from walking around the different areas, going through the tunnels that they were in and hearing things explode or the sound of planes flying over or people walking by uh, our main character. It was just really perfectly done, in my opinion. The cinematography here was fantastic, and that played a lot into it. And I thought there were so many scenes in this film that were really just exceptional, in my opinion, especially in the movie theater. I mean, I went to go see this with my wife, Emily, and a friend of hers. And one of my favorite scenes in the last few years is the scene right after he wakes up from being shot and he falls backwards. And it's really the only true edit in the film, even though it's dark, but... There's a clear showing of passage of time from that. And oh, yeah, that's like the actual, the only cut. Like, mm-hmm. People keep calling this a one-take film. Like, it's really a two-take film. Like, even in that moment, they're being transparent that this is an actual cut. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. So, just the music and the score from Thomas Newman was a little boilerplate, but I still thought it was pretty good. Uh, the music from that, the way the camera tilts down to his level then, and we see just the lighting up of the exploded buildings pretty much and the 
uh, you know, the bombs going off and you're seeing them only being lit from that and the music from it and the character running through just trying to get to the end of his goal and trying to figure out, A, is it too late already? Where am I? Yeah. Uh, where do I need to go? And just uh, everything that happened with that just like 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 actually did get the hairs on the back of my neck up. Like I was like jacked up for that. And not in a way of like, I love war, but more like just I love good cinema especially yeah. when it can do Stop. things like get you that excited to just be totally engrossed in what you're watching on the screen yeah. and i mean for a lot of people there are different things that can do that whether it's really good dialogue or scenes like this uh or a bunch of different things but yeah. for me that was absolutely exceptional and something i loved and and really enjoyed when i was watching the film and then as the film went on i thought it honestly just got better as moved towards its finale obviously the scene that almost everybody will remember is the scene of him running next to the dugout holes um and then him running into people which i was really yeah. angry at sam mendez because first for putting that in a trailer no oh. no um, i always say that because it's such a singular shot that mm-hmm. yeah I was waiting for that moment to happen, so yeah. it was kind of, it didn't, I normally am like, not, sometimes you have that complaint about trailers or whatever, and I'm always like, it's a trailer, man, it's just, movies, just, and that was one of the few times where I'm like, well, I kind of wish I wouldn't have seen something so iconic before, when it's a one-shot movie, whatever, so I shouldn't technically know what's going to happen from moment to moment, yeah. but I also know for a fact <laughs> that yeah. we haven't seen such a, you know, Rocky-esque Momentous. moment. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so a Sam Ed is a bad boss because a, he didn't think of this yet. He still probably should have taken credit for it. Anyways, he, I can't figure out how he could not have thought of it in, in the first, in the, like, it just makes total sense. But so, um, the main character played by, uh, George McKay is running and he just runs into people because they are running in the opposite direction and he mm-hmm. falls over and it's a great moment. And afterwards, Sam is like, oh, yeah, that wasn't a script. He just happened to fall over because he ran into somebody. So, you know, whatever. I'm like, but life isn't choreographed. Right. And I know that this is still a film and whatever. But, like, if you have thousands of people running right next to you and you're running. Perpendicular. Right. Yeah. You would have to run into them at some point. Yeah. So it's it's fine. Anyways, that's such a great moment because it does feel real. It does feel authentic. And it does feel like the clock is running out and he is just trying to like do anything that he can. Cause I, I know like not that feeling, but I know the feeling of like, you're trying to finish a deadline on some yeah. sort of project, whether it's for school or for work or for life or whatever. And like, you'll do almost anything to just do Get what through. you're trying to do and accomplish your goal. And, and to see that in this film and have it come to his completion. And yeah, he was always going to make it because that's just how these movies yeah. go. Uh, but at the same time, I love the journey here. I um, I even liked a lot of the smaller scenes, like the milk part of it. I actually thought was pretty, pretty, pretty good. Even though it, thank God he milked that cow. I was going to say um, I kind of didn't know where they were going with that, but it somewhat made same. sense, uh, and I, I didn't think it was that bad. Uh, although that scene is probably one of the the most awkward and and Sam you were mentioning that it is really weird that that group just shows up right after that death happens but at the same time 
just how that all happens. Like I loved the airplane flying into the barn and exploding yeah. and everything, even though that seems very, um, yeah. Yeah. The airplane was like the biggest, like cockeyed look at this. Cause I'm like, I'm watching it and I'm like, I, unfortunately I have the thought where they, they look at the airplane and I'm like, don't these two realize they're in a two take movie? Like that plane is coming right at you. And unfortunately I feel like that's the downfall of a choice like that, which is that you can have extremely tense scenes, but then you can also extremely telegraph what's going to happen in a moment and telegraphing takes away from tension. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I will say the idea of him walking over to get water to help the German guy out and then, Mm -hmm. Oh no, he's being stabbed. Uh, Uh Why would you do that? I don't. I don't. So this was actually a conversation, and, and I hate to interrupt, but no. um, this was a conversation that I brought up um, with Colin when we after we had watched the movie, um, and I had mentioned that you know I was very confused on a couple of things within that particular scene of if the milk is fresh and there's still a cow standing. Where what is the time lapse from like Germans yeah. or like because there's obviously nobody there but you can tell that the barn is partially burned. That and, cow is just happy to be there. Well, and <laughs> you go, you go only like a little bit, not even that much further along in the film, and they talk about all the cows being dead. So why is that? What is golden about that cow? Um, but. Anyway, well, no, um, but it's a valid question. <laughs> um, hey, what do you call a religious cow that likes to go out to lunch? Holy cow! No, amazing grace. How sweet that! Grass. And we're gonna get back on track with our scheduled program. So it's great. Um, <laughs> um, but I had brought up the point of you know why. Why would they? They know that the pilot is clearly a German. Um, I mean, why wouldn't they disarm him? I mean, that's the biggest thing. It's not right. so much like, why didn't they go over there and just execute him? But Right. Well, and not only just like saving him, but, and Colin had made a point of like, well, there's multiple moments of, you can see that these two are clearly not like. Super the, soldiers. Right. They're not super soldiers. They're not truly fighters. There's something um, humanitarian about them. They have compassion for, you know, being in the middle of war. This isn't also the end of World War Two either. This is... Correct. You know, these people who don't have a long history of, we know who these Germans are. <laughs> like, like yeah. obviously, they know that they're fighting an enemy at the same time. But, but they don't distinguish are, them between any other... Co- they haven't lived through... Right. They haven't lived through the Holocaust or yeah. Hitler or anything like that yet, right? I mean, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the ending pretty much said that they're not going to see it. Who's not going to see it? a joke. That they altered history. Oh! oh. <laughs> anyway. I'm glad that both Alex and I were kind of like, you're going to have to clarify? No, but what? that's like my one thing about all war movies. I'm like, whenever there's like a... Not that they always do happy endings, but whenever mm-hmm. there's like... It's like... so. Like, I understand it's in the moment, but also it's, like, there's a lot of context not being shown here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, but that was something that I had pointed out of, like, why save him? And I don't know if that's just me being callous um, and and sort of having, like, a if you're an enemy, you're an enemy. It does but... change. I think it does change the outcome later in the film because mm-hmm. he runs into a German soldier later. Yes. And he has a much different... 
uh, approach with that, which makes sense because now he is uh, engaged. And that's the thing that's crazy about it is he's engaged one German soldier and he tried to kill his friend and it succeeds in that. And he sees another German soldier and perhaps he would have had a different outcome if he right. would have just been like, hey, we're all good. Although he does try to yell and get him in trouble. So, you know what? You got to yeah. snitches get stitches or exactly. dead. So. But at the same time, he does spare the drunken German. So, yeah, I guess. And I granted, I've never fought in a war and I, you know, I'm not someone who like has served or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of moral dilemmas do come up and how you would make a decision under that sort of pressure. Um, so perhaps I would have been like Blake initially and would have been like, I mean, he's still a human. You still have to, you know, show some human decency for yeah, this guy's for burning in an airplane. You want right. to, you want to yeah. save him. But at the same time, what's the point of killing a man, you know, like in the face of winning a war, like, you know, right. I mean, it's, it's a much more human scale uh of a larger problem right so it's a that that i think that entire portion though was just very there was a lot going on and i don't know if in this case the one take did justice to it probably not. you know yeah anyway (laughs) nick please oh (laughs) thank you (laughs) Uh, yes, I saw this as well. And you did? I did. <laughs> um, I took my my father to see it. He very much enjoyed it. You're welcome, Jeffrey. Uh, no, I, I, I did not dislike this all that much, really, at all. I just, I don't really like war films at mm-hmm. all. Like, I just, the best of them, sure, can ring a bell, but I'm very far away from that noise. So I'm like, yeah, I kind of hear it, sure. But <laughs> the worst of them kind of infuriate me, and this was not one of those. But unfortunately, uh, I definitely thought that there was a decent enough story here with that kind of clock, so to speak, imposed on the movie that like, that in and of itself is already a clock. So the one shot is another layer that didn't actually add to it, but actually detracted from it. Because mm-hmm. you can have urgency without one shot, you know, whatever. Um, there were passages uh, passages in this movie that I... <laughs> there were passages in this movie that I enjoyed. Uh, the one aforementioned uh, passage in the kind of mine, like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. past the trench and in the underground, whatever, that Alex had mentioned. Bunker. I thought it was fantastic, yep. And that's actually a moment where the one-shot made sense because here's the thing. A one-shot camera, right, like that eagle-eye whatever view, in my opinion at least, has no real dramatic effect out on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. That is such a wide-open geographic space that to only cover it (laughs) from one spot, like you have to have a real good, I would say, purpose for that, for it to really land. And I think we see a lot of that in the beginning where when they're doing their first trek after they've gotten their mission, the camera can only go in front of them and then glide to behind them. And they continue walking. And then we're going to go back to in front of them. Oh, and let's take a look at those backsides again. And 
And I felt like, yeah, like all the crane shots and all the trick shots, because I'm sure that that was a technically just audacious shoot. Like, it's not so much that I feel like nothing went into it, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot of work for something that I didn't feel like translated very well on the screen. Agreed. However, there were moments when I could understand why a long take would be useful. For example, I thought the the use of that in the underground German bunker was fantastic because in there, there's an... We're actually in the headspace of them, which is that we can't really move around much, and we can't really see beyond where we're pointing our flashlight. So this is all on a myopic view anyway. So therefore, there's a one-to-one ratio between what the characters are experiencing and the shot that it goes beyond what would be called like bravura filmmaking, and it actually has a purpose. And I absolutely loved everything that happened in that underground uh, bunker. The... um, the use of that mouse and whatnot, mm-hmm. like that kind of how chaos can really enter their situation at any point, mm-hmm. even innocently, uh, was just stupendous, I thought. And I loved everything in there. And um, There were a few other passages I did enjoy. I, mean, I loved Andrew Scott in this movie. Mm-hmm. I really thought there could have been more, not necessarily of his character, but like more of that kind of ramshackle personality that we could have met along the way. Um, I mean, I understand they're in, they're, they're in the wartime and, you know, they're in the army, so it's going to be a lot of straight-laced people, but when Andrew Scott showed up, I thought he really enlivened that entire situation without actually sacrificing any of the tension. Um, in fact, he actually added more to it because he was very lackadaisical about how, like, this is such a fatalistic mission, mm-hmm. but also who is he to, you know, stop them or whatever, and mm-hmm. so I absolutely loved everything he had to do with him. Um and yeah, I think, I kind of feel like you guys somewhat hinted at it, maybe, or at the very least gave me an opening, which is that I thought the worst stretch of the movie by far was The Barn. Like, mm-hmm. I thought everything that pretty much happened was the movie at its most contrived, which, you know, those scenes are going to be a lot more apparent if you're going to do something like this one-shot mm-hmm. take. Yeah. And if you're going to do so many things in one sequence, which I think that that barn sequence tried to do, like you had the plane, uh, you know, action set piece, you had the uh, first big twist of the movie with the death of the friend, and then you have, you know, the convoy show up randomly at the moment of need. And I get that, you know, if a plane falls out of the sky, then maybe they're going to come, but... It, did, they didn't it seems even, like they were already there. Yeah, it didn't seem yeah. like they were at yeah. all, like, even noticed the plan. Shouldn't, I know they they be, pr- shouldn't they be running there? Being yeah. Like, not, like they're, they're just, just kind of like, oh. like, Like, the two guys are, like, pissing on the side of the other yep. barn, and they're just like, oh, hey! Yep. Yeah. So I just thought okay. that was the weakest stretch of the whole movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm with you, Alex, in that I did enjoy the nighttime cinematography oh, stuff so at good. the church. So good. And I very much, as I alluded to earlier, when I saw the VFX uh, uh, reel uh, for the nominations, I was like, oh, I, I knew there was CGI there, but I didn't know that that was pretty much a warehouse. And I thought that was a nighttime exterior with at least the, you know, uh, sightings of a barn and then CGI fire. You know, like the fact that that was all, but that's how you do VFX. You you work within the means of the constriction that have to be placed. Like, well, if we do it at nighttime, you're not going to be able to see a lot of the you know right. fun you know varnished stuff. So, mm-hmm. and it worked great for this movie because um, a it's just fantastic shot, but b it also was a great contrast to so many daylight scenes that we had gotten earlier, which are not bad. 
but feel a little too open. Like if you're if you're doing the one shot thing and you can see everything, mm-hmm. it it almost feels like why aren't we over there? Why aren't we? Whereas at least like in the bunker or with the church scene uh, at night, at least it kind of makes sense as to why the camera's not being too adventurous because who knows what's out there beyond the lines that they're crossing and whatnot. So um, I, I enjoyed that passage for sure. Um, overall, I didn't really like disliked this movie i just thought it was kind of a lot of wasted potential i thought there Mm. was um the mark strong scene i really enjoyed um but like i had kind of said earlier i really wish there was more to come out of that when he does his sign off of like make sure but there was other people in the room Yeah, that that benedict cumberbatch scene resolves really quickly yes and that was my biggest problem is that this is such a dramatic mission you know like it all makes and then for mark strong to you know drop that not bomb but just like Remember that even if you get there, there's still another battle to be fought. Well, even Colin, you know. even Colin Firth in the opening scene of this film yeah. is basically like, he's not going to want to do this. Yeah. And so, he gets there, and yeah. first of all, and I get this, but like, he's able to get past the two guards extremely easily. Like, it just yeah. takes him being a toddler, tantrum, whatever, <laughs> which fine. But then the moment he gets in that room, Benedict does his, like, prissy little no. And then one person says, well, should we hear about? No. Drop a beat. Well, okay. <laughs> and That's too fast. And I'm like, okay. Like, I just, I yeah, don't like, know. I, I, in all honesty, I thought that he was going to be overthrown from his position yeah, at that point. I feel point. like they wrote and themselves so, into a so, corner. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I know. I think they wrote themselves into a corner because they can't necessarily you know, with this kind of ticking time bomb, they can't like let time pass literally, you know, like they have to do it now. However, they also felt like they didn't want to undermine, I think Benedict Cumberbatch's authority. So they had to have him go back on his own word, but but, But they didn't give any of the other characters agency to try and help manipulate that or, or fight for that. You know, the problem with Benedict Cumberbatch's character is even though he's mentioned multiple times, we only see him on screen for about two and a half minutes in this film. Yeah. So, Having him deliver these important lines and have it fall pretty flat yep. makes sense, but at the same time, and why he, why do that? Like you you you've got a film that's already two and a half hours. Why would you not create more tension in that climactic scene? And here's where a one shot film fails because it can't do. You could have been cutting to Benedict Cumberbatch maybe every 15 minutes just to see what was happening on the front lines and to see how ready to go they were and how steadfast he was and whatnot, not to spend that much time on it, you know, and checking back in so that by the time the paths converged, it was going to be like, oh, we've been, you know, we've been following how determined this camp is and we've seen that, you know, this general is not going to be... But that meeting of the minds was very weak. And for that to be the impetus of the entire dramatic resolution, I thought, was the ultimate failure of this movie. I also find it that you they could have had a lot more potential to build up to it as well. And I think tension would have played in favor at that point, too. Yeah. With I, I think the multiple cuts would have been good or... Even just more like prior conversation with other characters regarding his character. Um, I think the convoy that he met, if they could have like referenced his character of some kind. Um, yeah. You know, like even if he mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm going to meet, you know, so-and-so. And if that 
commanding officer would have said, oh, oh yeah, you know, like, and, I don't want to be in a room with him. Or... Right. And, and kind of built up that character more. I would have felt more, I guess, uh, that scene would have had more gravity to it. Mm-hmm. But with everything that kind of happened, and I think that's, while I very much enjoyed this film and I, I think it's beautiful, I think that was something that, unfortunately, the story itself doesn't lend itself to be, to have exceptional moments of gravity. Yeah. I think more it's more sensationalistic than it is, I would yeah. say, dramatic. And, and, and not I, in a bad way. Exactly. Oh, no. It's, yeah. it's not anything awful. It's just, um, for my story tastes, Personally, um, while I do enjoy a, a simple film, um, not simple, but like um, <laughs> a simple film, um, a, um, I've got a, a bit, 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 <laughs> big, big brain. Oh Sorry. boy! Have you ever seen? Uh, you ever seen Tropic, Tropic Thunder? Thunder? Parts of it. Okay, it's 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 a cinematic masterpiece. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's it's fun. It holds yes. up for the most part. Yes, and I just did a really, which that is, that's the uh, that's the Sean Penn movie that they're riffing off of. I think I am Sam. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean I think they're ripping off the entire trend, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, from Forrest Gump to yeah. I am Sam. Yeah. But, uh, yes. So <laughs> what were you gonna say? <laughs> back, yes. back on track here. Um, but I think. Um, while I enjoy like sort of like a, if you will, like a Greek tragedy, which was what I kept comparing it back to yep. is because you have minimal characters, you have, you know, sort of a, a chorus in the background and you have your main players. Um, Broad strokes, big stakes. Right. It's one landscape. You're going, you know, in a linear direction. Um, there's nothing complicated about it in, in that sense. Um while I appreciate those, I think there could have been a little bit more of, while I understand what I'm caring about, I think I could have been, I guess, nudged a little bit more as as a viewer. I think a lot of the things in this movie was in service of the cinematography instead of the other way around, Mm -hmm. which there's a way to do one shot whatnot i mean you know i'll be i'll be a hypocrite and say one of my favorite episodes of television from uh, i guess it's 2018 now but was an episode of the haunting of hill house on netflix that was 50 minutes of one shot oh no it was a unbroken 27 minute or 30 minute scene in a 50 minute episode Mm -hmm. where then they do another cut but pretty much it's, it's that opening 30 minutes where and that was i thought extremely uh purposeful and there was dramatic tension for doing it uh and yeah anyway but so there it's not like i'm against this type of school for thought but i'm always going to be kind of scrutinizing of it because it's such a specific mode of filmmaking that if anyone doesn't connect with when it's being done that is a lot of what ifs that are then attached. Like, what if we didn't do this? And what if we got to actually go see over there? And what if we we weren't so on track, you know, and whatnot? So, um, but anyway, what if? 
something I really did like about the film yes. was the idea that we never see anything really about his family throughout the entirety of the film. And this idea of him maybe not having a family, maybe yep. not having a significant other of any kind, maybe. And, and, and It made you think that he was the expendable one. I think in the first half of the movie, whereas his friend, I mean, that's what I thought was the impression of the movie was giving off. Not so much that I was like falling for or whatever, you know what I mean? But I thought that was the vibe of like, well, you know, you've got his friend here who's got a brother he's got to see and whatever. And he doesn't have anybody because I'm mm. talking to, and I kind of, anyway, I kind of cut you off, but no, I was uh, just going for that. I thought that was pretty much just totally fantastic because the withholding of that until the very end of the film is awesome because it'll make a rewatch that much better, yeah. uh, especially in the scenes. Uh, and they do tip their hand a little bit in the scene when he sees the woman with the baby, um, which I also thought was a very good scene too. Uh, even though I could see anyone thinking that that scene wasn't that great because it didn't really fit into the rest of the film. But at the same time, he still arrives there and there is something that is a little, I I want to say... Nurturing... I was actually going to go the opposite direction. I was going to say, Ugh. Uh, I was going to say, I felt like I was apprehensive about her character because of previous actions in this uh, film that I felt like maybe her motives weren't 100% genuine, that she had some man there who she was just trying to keep him talking. But at the end no. of the day, and that's, but that's the, I feel like okay. in war films, women are the oasis. Uh, I'm just saying as far as how they roll them out as tropes, uh, yeah. and not even for like sexual reasons or whatever, but like, oh, we've entered a grace period of the movie. It's a moment of nurture instead of violence. Yeah. I, I, just I think felt that's that a, too, yeah. and that was something that... Not to say that there aren't traitors, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Women. <laughs> Oh, or as we darkness. refer to them now, traitors. That's great. That's good. <laughs> that was something that, while I don't know if like people, I don't necessarily agree with folks that were saying like, oh, like it felt offhanded. I think it was very much a, a precursor or like a prelude to like eventually like moments of keeping civilians um, kind of hidden, like with World War II, obviously. Um, but also, like, it also brought that sense of, like, I mean, these are real people. They literally just had their entire town, like, busted into. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it interesting, though, that it's a woman with a baby that is not hers. Um, which. That's right. I think that kind of lends itself more to that nurturing, like we're, we're trying to touch on like that highlight of it. Um, but yeah, I feel like also my, the vibe I got was a baby. She just recently acquired. I I, I I just got this feeling that she has not had this baby for probably more than like a few days. Yeah, Yeah. Mm. I agree. So, so if we want to go to final ratings, uh, I think that uh, we've we've hit the most pillars here, and everyone's given their thoughts. So, um, Sam, do you want to go first on ratings? Sure. Okay. Um, I know we've talked about it a lot, obviously, um, and it won awards for it. Um, but I think that the cinematography of this was very ambitious, and it was beautiful. Um, I truly love 
the the color scheme of this film as well as the different various angles and things like that that were being utilized um to kind of show different angles of you know two people for the most part um and and i think it's nice to have been able to sort of follow them with such a smooth seamlessness um considering that the the period itself was not smooth and was not seamless at all um so that was very lovely um while in comparison there are some things about it that i think could have been better done i guess um more well done um but that being said it wasn't that it was atrocious um they're not like grievous faults and within the film um and just sort of i think that's when cuts would have been more beneficial to the storyline of it Mm. um but for for this sort of piece for a war piece um i thought it was it was quite well done um especially just being able to capture that image and that urgency of of one day um on on a battlefield um so with that um i would give it a can i do like a three and seven like three and three quarters hell yeah sure um so a three and three quarters okay (laughs) um you're you're a fan of the unusual ratings so that's good (laughs) good Good, yes. I will be known as that person. I think we should tell Toussaint we're going to switch officially Film Tank to a 100-point scale and see <laughs> see how he reacts. 50. <laughs> 75. Yes, there's only four numbers you can choose from still. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, I actually am going to bring my rating down a little bit from my original score, which was very high. Uh, But I think it is warranted now that I'm thinking more about it that I feel like I'm not as jacked about the final product. But I will say, not in your defense like you need it or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but I will say I'm in the same boat when it comes to like the power of sometimes the first time you see something and Mm -hmm. like that it doesn't mean that it was the worst movie when you saw it, you just didn't realize it. But like sometimes it's it it would genuinely be awesome to see movies for the first time over and over. Absolutely. Because there is nothing like the staying power of Living in that moment. Anyway. Which I think that this film, uh, and the reason why I gave it the rating I did, and I still think this film's very good, uh, but I think that this is really attention-grabbing on a first viewing, especially in the theater, especially in a theater that has good sound. And even though I was at a theater that has notoriously had sound issues in the past, seems like they've made past it. They must have had a sound of, uh, update here in the last year or so. Uh, I'm talking about Charlestown, by the way. But they've had many incidents where the sound has been poor uh, in the past, and uh, it's been pretty consistently better here recently. But now they have $9 beers. (laughs) I heard about that. (laughs) So that's good. I'm sure they're still going to be purchased. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Even by me. Yeah. Uh, That being said, there are some parts of this film that are a little bit uh, not as good. And I, I do think that the editing part of it has to weigh on this film a bit as it did bring down the entirety of the story. Uh, that being said, I love this movie. I thought it was very good. I love the cinematography, the sound design, and the pacing of this film, even though the 
editing thing was kind of silly. So that being said, I'm going to give this a four out of five, a solid four. And I four, four and two. a quarter, four point zero eight. Yes, I'm gonna give this pie three point one. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, I thought this was very good, and I'm excited to uh, watch it uh, at my home with my sound bar that I have now. So, yay! Yeah, I'll be looking forward to that, and uh, maybe I will go back to my original rating of four and a half after a second moon because I will like it that much more, and I will be able to get past some of the problems here, but. This is still very good, and I think it is uh, worthy of the four-star rating I'm going to give it. Moving on to Nick. Yeah, uh, I give this a two and a half out of five. It's just not for me, really, at the end of the day, and so I don't have much to say. So sorry that this is somewhat anticlimactic, much like the scene with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Well, right on. Anyone out there have feelings on this film that they want to share with us? Always feel free to send them to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter at filmtankshow as well. Coming up on our next episode, we are going to talk about a fabulous early mid-90s film called The Fugitive that stars Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and is very good. And I will I can attest to that it is still very good because I watched this about three weeks ago and uh, every time I watch this, I'm just compulsively watchable is the probably best word to come up with this because just seeing the train sequence happen early on in the film, I'm just blown away that we could have something that looks that good from 30 years ago almost. And yet now we have, again, CGI dinosaurs and that kind of shit. So there's a lot to this film to like. Uh, a, a really simple story, but also a very um, entertaining story. And definitely this film is a product of its time. Uh, a lot of films of this kind of ilk were made around then, um, but it's still just very good. And also really good performances by Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, who actually won an Academy Award for that film. So, In true Nick Cheney fashion, uh, before we do the episode and before we watch the movie, I'm going to be watching episodes of the the Fugitive, the mm-hmm. show that it's based off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun fact about the show, does anyone know what that show was the first to do in television history? Uh, a one-shot episode? Nope. Okay. Yeah, I got nothing else then. Series finale. It was the first time a show had an actual premise and a story, uh, in this case, would he be caught, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. that the show itself, a lot of times back before that show, it would like a show would have a premise like what if it but it, but then the show would just stay on the air and there was no actual whatever and then it's just oh we don't need that show anymore it's over you know if not the, like it would be unanswered questions this would this was the fugitive was the first time that the writers were like we're getting a final episode we get to write the episode in which he's captured or not you know mm-hmm. and it was then started the trend of like maybe we should close these loops. So anyway, novel concept, and it was one of the <laughs> most watched episodes of television at that time. Wow! Hmm. So interesting. Yep. Fun fact. That's all I can think about whenever I think of the fugitive before okay. I actually watch the movie. Well, now you'll see the movie, and then we can uh, someday down the road watch the not as good sequel, U.S. Marshals. Is that a sequel to that? Oh, absolutely. I. You know what? I always feel like every time I hear that yes. fact, I remember it. And then I forget it after a week. So then every time I hear, because I do actually vaguely remember that now, 
But yeah, no. That will flow out of my brain. Well, Harrison about... Ford is not in it because he's not part of the story. Right, because Tommy Lee Jones is in it. Tommy Lee Jones and his whole team, including like Joe Pantoliano, are in it. Yep. But it surrounds Wesley Snipes, and uh, it has, uh, I think it's CIA. Uh, it's either FBI or CIA agent, played by Robert Downey Jr., uh-huh. when he was like in the midst oh. of his struggles. Yikes. So he okay. did that for the money. And Robert Downers Jr. I mean, yeah, it was a, it was a not great time for him. Although, who would know? Don't that, judge me, Sam. <laughs> who would know that? You know, ten short years later, I think be, he's pretty much bulletproof at this point. He totally is. I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> Uh, it's fine. Anyway, anyway, we will not be talking about U.S. Marshals, but we will. Be we talking will be talking about, about We Are Marshall. Uh, that's a movie as well. <laughs> a sequel to U.S. Marshals. <laughs> Just keeps going. Little known fact. <laughs> yes, very little known. Uh, so, the fugitive to look forward to on our next episode. Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, as always. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully, we'll be joining. Uh, you'll be joining us again coming up, uh, you know, a month or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about doing the uh, new uh, Elizabeth Moss movie. Um, so that'll be something to hopefully look forward to. Or, or we'll do something else. You know, whatever. You know. <laughs> yep. Uh, so from Sam, Nick, and myself, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Film Tag. Film Tag.